The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Welcome to the narrated Puritan portion of the Man of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. Soon after I got to Grand Rapids, in the year 1989, one of my priorities was to visit the Library of Calvin Seminary, which is a phenomenal library of reform works. And it was the first time I was able to cast my eyes upon a set of books, the entire set, of the Biblical Repertory in Princeton Review, which came out of Princeton Theological Seminary. In my hand is an article from July 1857 called Moral Insanity. The professor who wrote this is a man named Lyman Atwater, whom I have found very, very helpful in an upcoming Sunday school that I am preparing for called A History of Biblical Subscription in a case examined in the case of New Haven theology in the disruption of the Presbyterian Church in the year 1837. And that article is called Jonathan Edwards and the Successive Forms of Divinity. But I'll begin with this article because I think it will be very interesting to our listeners, and especially considering this was written in 1857. The Frequency and Success With which criminal advocates plead insanity as a defense for atrocious crime, are viewed with deep concern by a large part of our people. Those who have at heart the interests of morality and religion are of course alarmed at the apparent countenance thus given to the doctrine that the presumption of excusable insanity and consequent guiltlessness increases in proportion to the atrocity of the crime committed. This tends to subvert all moral distinctions, to innervate and pollute the public conscience, to put men at their ease in taking up a profligate career and perpetrating the most enormous crimes. Thus, it poisons the fountains of public virtue and saps the foundations of religion. Beyond those who have these paramount interests at heart, another large class look with apprehension upon the bearing of such principles on social order and the security of persons and property. They justly feel that the blessings of good government are imperiled or lost when the enormity of crimes is made to ensure their impunity. The plea of insanity, an exculpation of criminals, is of two sorts. First, where any circumstances can be proved which render it plausible, it is claimed that the culprit was a victim of some derangement or delusion in his intellect, which destroyed his moral agency at last co-ed hot. It is simply an attempt to prove that he was a lunatic, and that by reason of this disorder of his reason, he was incapable of knowing the difference between right and wrong in the premises. Now, where such an allegation can be sustained, it is unquestionably a valid defense. Reason is, according to the intuitive and universal judgment of mankind, 
essential to moral agency and accountability. No maniac is accountable or culpable or punishable for actions committed under the influence of his insane delusion. The principle in this case is right. It ought to govern the administration of criminal justice. It is often perverted, however, by being applied without the slightest justifiable pretext. Criminals, who had never been suspected of insanity before the commission of some heinous crime, are often shielded by the plea of lunacy, when it was scarcely the shadow of support in facts. Some few circumstances of his previous history are hunted up, were in some aspect of oddity or singularity. Materials of this sort will be thrown up when astute advocates pass their dragnets over any man's history, and it would not be hard in this way to prove almost any man mad. Yet, in such cases, no false principle is involved. It is only the misapplication of a true principle. Unquestionably, there are a multitude of cases in which the evidence in regard to insanity, if not adequate to produce conviction of its existence, is sufficient to raise a reasonable doubt. A reasonable doubt of guilt on any ground, according to all principles of humanity and law, necessitates the acquittal of the accused. But such a doubt ordinarily labors under just suspicion if the sanity of the accused has never before been questioned or doubted. A few oddities, which never before caused any suspicion of mental derangement, by no means justify such a reasonable doubt of sanity and consequent accountability as to destroy the presumption of guilt and warrant impunity in cases of detestable crime. On such pretexts, a majority of men could be proved insane, if there were any adequate motive for doing it. It is but a step from the theory openly broached by the boldest of this school of thinkers. This theory is that atrocious crime, and especially bloodshed, whether by murder or suicide, is ipso facto proof of insanity, and indicates such cerebral derangement is exempt from responsibility, guilt, and punishment. With this school, crime is a fiction, an impossibility, and the only punishment should be medication, the only prisons, insane asylums. And if their principles are sound, why are they not equally good for the non-existence of all sin and moral evil of whatever sort? Why are the things commonly so-called to be counted anything else than the proofs and effects of a distempered brain? There are, however, many others who go far beyond these experienced observers, who only assert the doctrine of moral insanity, and seem disposed to include all crime under the category of insanity. A review in England, important as the organ of a party in political ethics, uses these words. The public mind is awakened to the fact that all crimes are the result of perversions of intellect, and like other species of insanity, deserve to be treated with more of compassion than vengeance. In Germany, the following question has been gravely discussed among its medical jurists. If monomania consists in a subjection of the intellectual faculties to one predominant idea, ought we not to regard a person as monomaniacal whose mental faculties are governed by a vivid affection as violent passion? Or in other words, is the existence of monomania 
to be conceded whether the reason is affected by an erroneous conviction or a violent passion. The answer to this is generally in the negative, yet some contend that there is a mixed, diseased state of the mental faculties, a mixture of passions and insanity. This shows to what extravagant length some medical jurists and psychologists, as well as speculative and socialistic reformers, are disposed to press the notion that sin and crime are the effect of such distempers of mind or brain as divest them of all moral character and responsibility, that they are proof of the insanity which excuses them. Much more like this might be extracted from the phrenologists and materializing atheists. We give Spurheim's definition of insanity partly because it presents very precisely one form of the doctrine, which will be the principal topic of this article. According to him, it is, quote, either a morbid condition of any intellectual faculty without the person being aware of this, or the existence of some of the natural propensities and such violence that it is impossible not to yield to them, in quote. Theories of Practice of Medicine, Volume 2, page 706. This brings us to the second sort of insanity, which, though of recent discovery, has begun to figure largely in the defense of great criminals. Our readers will understand us referring to moral insanity, so-called. This has become the favorite resort in defending these desperate culprits who give no indication of insanity but the enormity of their crimes where there not only is no hallucination proved which amounts to unreason, but the absence of it is clearly shown, no other resource remains for defending those whose agency in crime is clearly evinced. Prima facie, at least, there seems no good reason why. If it be a valid defense in some cases, it should not be in all. And we think this will be no less apparent on the most rigid investigation. Dr. Pritchard, by whom, according to Dr. Wood, quote, the subject has been most elaborately considered, end quote, defines this distemper to be a morbid perversion of the feelings, affections, and active powers, without any illusion or erroneous conviction impressed on the understanding. We ask, at the outset, if there is any conceivable state of moral pollution, perversion, or deprivation which this definition will not include and excuse, is not such a doctrine startling to all who believe in the radical distinction between sin and holiness, virtue and vice? Let it be observed that what these authors are defining here is not culpable madness, either in thought, feeling, or action, but such insanity as clears from responsibility and guilt for the commission of crime. The only ground for inferring such irresponsible insanity is found in the irrational and extravagant character of the propensities, passions, and acts themselves, not in any delusion of the intellect. Now, we ask, is not every wicked propensity feeling and act absolutely irrational? Surely this is so, unless we obliterate all moral distinctions and deny the intrinsic excellence of goodness and turpitude of sin, their correspondent merit and demerit, their respective title to rewards and obligation of punishment. Surely, by no intuition or deduction of reason can we reach any other conclusion. The word of God is equally sure and explicit to this purpose. 
It teaches us that the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. Unless, then, we are prepared to make an end of sin and guilt, it will not do to say that irrational impulses, desires, feelings, purposes, or acts prove any such lack of understanding as destroys moral agency and accountability. And for all who are not themselves demented, we need not expatiate in proof of such self-evident propositions. But truth compels us to go much further than this. All sinful feelings and desires involve a certain blindness or delusion of the intellect. The intellectual are not in such utter divorce from the emotional and active powers as these medical jurists, with many modern psychologists and theologians, suppose. They are both forms of the activity of the one indivisible, rational, sentient, willing soul. Not only so, these modes of its activity do not go on in isolation and independence of each other. They mutually interpenetrate and determine each other. Every man's feelings, inclinations, and purposes are shaped by his views of the objects to which they relate. His apprehensions, judgments, and reasonings about these objects are very much controlled by his feelings. To think as we feel, and feel as we think, is among the most familiar experiences shown in every man's consciousness and confirmed by all his observation. Hence, all sin has in it an element of delusion, the deceitfulness of sin, the deceivableness of unrighteousness are specimens of the habitual representations of the sacred writers, that they represent blindness of mind, amounting even to an inability to discern what is most essential in spiritual things, as an invariable element of our natural depravity no candid person can deny. They set it forth in manifold forms, and especially in the two reciprocal forms of wicked passions, bewildering the intellect, and of intellectual blindness begetting depravity of feeling. The wicked are described as saying to God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of your ways, is not likened to retain God in their knowledge. On the other hand, they are described as having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, as those who do not and cannot know the things of the Spirit, as being turned aside by a deceived heart. The crucifiers of Christ knew not what they did. Paul verily thought that he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There is, then, an element of delusion or deceit in all sin, sometimes inducing, sometimes induced by the impulses of perverse feeling or passion. This blindness may have reference to the intrinsic excellence of goodness and some of its divine or human relations, or to the turpitude of sin in general, or of the particular crime to which the subject is impelled in any case by the urgency of passion, or to the retribution which will follow it. Or it may, and often does, respect all these combined in one concrete whole. But it seldom happens that crimes, great or small, are committed deliberately in full view of, or with a conscience fully awake to their baseness, or their punishment. It is seldom that sinners do not disguise to themselves their guilt, and criminals their offenses by some veil of plausible pretension. This is true of all the ungodly in regard to their religion. It was true of Paul, 
and it's been true of the persecutors of all ages. It was true of the crucifiers of the Lord of glory. It is always true of the profane, the licentious, and the desperate. It is true of the heroes in villainy and crime, of the monsters who showered the blood of their fellows upon the streets of Paris in the French Revolution. Allison justly observes, quote, In the blood which they shed was often the result, in their estimation not so much of tears or danger, as of overbearing necessity, they deemed it essential to the success of freedom and regarded the victims who perished under the guillotine as a melancholy sacrifice which required to be laid on all its altars. The weakness of humanity in their case, as in so many similar cases, deceived them by the magic of words or the supposed influence of pure motives and led them to commit the greatest crimes while constantly professing the purest intentions." Now, what we complain of is that the recent definitions of such insanity as destroys responsibility are so broad and loose as to include that madness which enters largely into all, or nearly all, sin and crime. We think those who do not mean to abolish sin and crime will hardly be prepared to take the ground that every sort of intellectual delusion excuses the crime to which it may lead. To concede this would be to sap the foundations of morals and religion. The reason is that perverse moral judgments are possible and almost universal among men, which are merely the effects and manifestations of their depravity. So far from excusing wrong, they are in themselves flagrant sin. They are simply the devices of the depraved soul to shelter or mask its own iniquities. The denunciations of God's word charge guilt not merely upon depraved moral feelings, but with equal emphasis upon depraved moral judgments. Quote, Woe to them that call good evil and evil good, to put light for darkness and darkness for light. If it is difficult to gainsay this, the question will nevertheless arise what room is left for irresponsible insanity. We answer that, although there are many delusions on moral subjects, which do not screen from guilt, and are themselves most culpable, yet there are delusions which destroy moral agency and responsibility in reference to the actions to which they lead. They involve or proceed from that lunacy which amounts to the loss or wreck of intellect in regard to the case in hand, and therefore incapacitates for rational and responsible action. But here the question arises, how shall we distinguish one sort of delusion from the other, that which excuses crime from that which constitutes its essence? A pregnant question indeed. And yet we apprehend it is not difficult to find a true criterion which marks this heaven-wide difference. It may be thus stated, Delusion, which results from the criminal neglect to employ our faculties aright, or which might be avoided by any employment of them that is practical by us, is itself culpable. Delusion, which does not result from our own fault, and which sinless candor and fidelity on our part could not remove, which arises from a lesion of intellect, that incapacitates it for rational or reliable judgments in the premises, excuses for crimes committed under its influence, 
The principle is well stated by the late Archibald Alexander in the following terms, quote, On the subject, again, our appeal must be to the unbiased judgment of mankind, and we think the verdict will be that error which might have been avoided, and ignorance which is not invincible, do not excuse, end quote. Archibald Alexander's Moral Philosophy, Chapter 9. If then, if it be true that moral delusions do not of themselves prove insanity, until it is shown that these delusions are more than mere depraved moral judgments, until it appears that the intellectual faculties are so shattered that even in the absence of any moral fault, they are inadequate in any practicable use of them to dispel such delusions, much less can any form of mere morbid disease or passion without intellectual aberration events irresponsible insanity or excuse the crimes to which it impels. It seems to us incontestable, in the light of the foregoing views, that the principles we here combat would make an end to all sin and crime, all moral distinctions. But is it the intent of the medical psychologists with whom these doctrines originate to put an end to moral distinctions and establish a universal license and impunity for crime? Taking them as a class? We don't think so. The great body of these respectable, including some eminent physicians who have promulgated or sanctioned these views, are actuated by compassion for the unfortunate, not by sympathy with crime. Their object has been to procure, for a class whom they believe demented in such a sense as to destroy responsibility, the treatment due to maniacs, rather than the criminals. There are indeed among the advocates of these views those who ignore and detest the doctrine of human depravity. It is a favorite resource for such to refer all the misconduct of men to cerebral disease, or other physical derangement, or to untoward external circumstances, anything which does not necessitate the hypothesis of inward corruption, or make the evildoer the culpable source of its own misdeeds. In this category, in various degrees, we find some of the chief schools of radical and social reformers. Many of these believe that a change of outward circumstances and treatment, in the way of dietetics, hygiene, medications, and social reconstruction, will cure the moral distempers of men. All systems of materialism, biological necessity, attribute moral aberration to physical derangement to make light of guilt and retribution. The same tendency appears in all pantheistic schemes, which, besides identifying mind and manner, run into a fatalistic optimism and maintain that whatever man is or does is in the strict sense necessary and best. The development and efflorescence of the divinity within him. But of all classes, the phrenologists have a signal preeminence here. Place in the different faculties of the mind in different parts of the brain and skull, it is by the examination of these bodily organs that they study as properties and to a very great extent determine their psychology, their philosophy, their theology, their ethics, their jurisprudence and politics. The whole tendency of this method is to generate confusion and error in whatever concerns men as moral and responsible beings. Perverse feeling, thinking, and action on this theory inevitably suppose and arise from a morbid condition of the brain or some portion of it. Its proper treatment is fit medication. 
Moral and intellectual insanity may find a place in this scheme. Responsibility, sin, crime, and punishment are words almost without meaning. Moreover, allotting each faculty to some special section of the head, on whose healthy state the healthful condition and exercise of the faculty itself depend, any extravagance of thought or feeling is attributed to a morbid condition of the correspondent cerebral organ, i.e., to irresponsible insanity. And as these organs are the directive and impulsive causes of all cognitive, sensitive, and voluntary action, they irresistibly control it each one according to its relative energy. If any of them are in disproportionate strength, irresponsible and unavoidable, insanity results. This tallies precisely with Spursheim's view of moral insanity as, quote, the existence of some of the natural propensities and such violence that it is impossible not to yield to them, end quote. It is not at all surprising that medical writers on the phenomena of mind, normal or abnormal, should have erred in a similar direction, if not to the same extent, or even that many of them should have been influenced by the method of phrenology. Their training, their line of observation and inquiry, primarily and immediately respect the body, not the soul. This, their whole professional life, is devoted. The mind is their study only in an incidental way as it affects or is affected by the body. Their examination of it is limited simply to the mutual interdependence between it and the body, and as chiefly as either one or both are in a morbid state. Hence, they are naturally predisposed to look with favor on that method of psychological investigation which primarily ascertains the laws and faculties of the mind, from the study of the real or supposed bodily organs in which they are manifested. There are abundant exceptions to this remark, but it cannot be denied that so far as this noble profession has shown skeptical tendencies, they have usually leaned to the materialistic side. The method of study in the mind, which we have pointed out, admirably prepares them for many in the ministries of mercy to diseased humanity which constitute their higher vocation. Their vocation, too, makes them far more familiar with insanity and all forms of morbid mental action than any other class of men. They often find the mind the most potent restorative agent for the body, and physical medication is generally indispensable to the cure of a distempered mind. Hence, they are most valuable and indispensable witnesses in all judicial questions pertaining to insanity, or to the indications of it, or of any morbid state of mind and body. Hence, too, it has happened that much more largely than any other class of men, they have discussed the whole subject of insanity in itself, and its ethical and legal relations, and within their proper province we are indebted to them for light which could emanate from no other source. Still, their training and experience do not make them masters of intellectual philosophy, any more than psychologists are, of course, experts in anatomy. As to all facts pertaining to bodily distempers, or indicated morbid mental action, we look to them for light, and defer to them as generally the most competent observers and witnesses. As to the question whether these facts indicate such insanity as destroys responsibility, they are no better judges than other men of equal general intelligence. 
the unperverted common sense of mankind will ordinarily give a safer spontaneous judgment upon such facts, if clearly understood, and upon their bearings on moral responsibility, than any special and conflicting opinion which may arise from exclusive attention to the reciprocal relations of the mind and body. For although it may be the province of the philosopher to develop in formal statement and definition the conditions of moral responsibility, yet all tolerably enlightened men, who are under no disturbing bias, will judge with intuitive certainty any concrete case whether it involves merit or demerit. However this may be, it is certain that those who undertake to teach in departments which they have not mastered by special study will find themselves betrayed into loose and crude statements, pregnant with consequences from which they themselves must shrink as soon as they are developed. It is true, indeed, that with reference to the body and soul, all have them at hand for constant inspection and know enough about them for the ordinary conduct of life. So all the liberal professions interlocked by a common vinculum. In each there is some vague and general knowledge of what pertains to the others. This is one thing. It is quite another to be able to instruct or discourse to any good purpose in departments which have not been mastered by comprehensive as well as special study. The lawyer or theologian who undertakes to discuss scientifically the principles of surgery or medicine usually makes an awkward figure, nor are physicians who have undertaken to settle questions in psychology and ethics succeeded much better, unless, like John Locke, they have made it a special and chief study. Even this illustrious philosopher, with all of its merits, was remarkable for loose and facilitating phraseology, and had a strong sensuous nay, in a few places, a materialistic bias, so that the French materialists had only to twist his writing somewhat in order to impress him into their service. It is only by the study of consciousness that we can obtain any valid science of the human mind, or of a collateral department, just as it is by the study of anatomy alone that we can attain any scientific knowledge of the human body. In other words, each must be studied directly and immediately in their own proper phenomena before they can be understood in themselves. Not until they are thus, in some good degree, understood in themselves may this intelligence in regard to either be increased and perfected by study in their mutual relations. But when we are studying this sentient and intelligent principle, and I myself, we are not examining uh, conjuries of muscles, nerves, or bones. And when we are studying these, we are not studying the rational soul. Here, we apprehend is the true reason why phrenology, amid many valuable discoveries, has made so signal failure in its pretensions to be a science of the mind, and why physicians so often stumble in dealing with points strictly psychological and with the ethical problems thence arising. Morrill very forcibly observes, quote, It is of great importance that the two scientists should each hold their proper limits, and that the one should not be allowed to assume the ground which peculiarly belongs to the other. To mark the boundaries of physiology and psychology, we must simply inquire what are the phenomena which we learn by consciousness, and what those which we learn by outward observation. These two regions lie entirely without each other, 
so much so that there is not a single fact learned by consciousness which we should ever have learned by external observation, and not a single fact learned by external observation of which we are ever conscious. We have dwelt the longer on this point, because we wish to make it clear that when we look beyond the intuitive dictates of common sense in investigating the faculties of the mind and those conditions of it which involve responsibility or the reverse to the deeper and clearer unfoldings of philosophy, this philosophy cannot be developed by those whose studies are chiefly medical and physiological. If developed at all, it must be by those who have made it their business to examine the mind itself and its faculties, laws, and operations, and the ethical questions since emerging by the immediate inspection of its phenomena in consciousness, i.e. by adepts in mental and moral philosophy. It is no disrespect to say this any more than it would be a reflection on a metaphysician's to say that they would make themselves ridiculous in an anatomical chair. This, we apprehend, explains in part at least why many distinguished physicians have propounded dogmas in reference to those morbid mental states, which, if good for their purpose, as we have seen, are good for a great deal more, and really subvert all moral distinctions, a consequence from which most of them would recoil with horror.